Blog Talk Radio. Standing record. Abe Ruth, we're talking home 715. That was the one that elevated him into legendary status there. Before that, of course, in his fourth season in the league, uh, he had 23 long ones, hit 44 home runs, 132 RBIs, at least 25 home runs in every season from the early 1950s to 1973. I uh, mentioned a long time in the league, of course, then the Milwaukee Braves, the Brewers, um, a legend where you're talking southern cities and Atlanta as well, first time all-time in RBIs and two consecutive home runs. Let's bring in our Jim Bowden. Well, hello, hello. Welcome. We're uh, coming to you this morning on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, thank you for being a part of what we're doing. This morning we're, we're giving homage, and, and uh, we're going to dedicate this show to the great baseball legend, Hank Aaron had passed uh, this week, and Hank Aaron set the uh, a set a standard for baseball and set a standard for a black athletes. He set a standard that men are still striving for just just these days in baseball. You know, I used to play baseball. I really enjoyed baseball, and you know, and I didn't realize that you could make money because people that when I was younger they say, "Hey, man, you know, there's no future in baseball, not for a black man." It was, but you know, I ended up playing an all star game. I had a dynamic batting average. I got on base each and every time I got up to the plate. But one time I did strike out. I, you know, I strike out because uh, you know at the all star game because my mother and father came to see me play, and then uh, I struck out. But I did wanted to just take time out and just uh, ensure this here moment of baseball legend, legend with you about Hank Aaron. And then we're going to follow up with some more uh, sports memories about the uh, Black Baseball Negro League. And, and now I'm going to yield the floor right now and give you an opportunity to listen to an uh, autobiography of Hank Aaron. And also you can call in. The uh, show is uh, the number is three one zero nine eight two forty one twenty six. So uh, just sit back, relax, and enjoy this autobiography of the late baseball superstar. You're listening to Free on the Inside Ministry. By the age of eighteen, he earned a spot on the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro League and got the attention of a major league scout. In 1954, he made his debut with the Milwaukee Braves. Although the color barrier had been broken by Jackie Robinson seven years earlier, African-American players still had to work extra hard to prove their worth on the field. In 1957, Aaron had his breakout season, winning the National League MVP award. The 23-year-old led the league in home runs and RBIs while leading the Braves to a World Series title. In 1966, the Braves moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta, Though the team's address changed, Aaron's stellar performance on the field continued. By the early 70s, Aaron had been a perennial all-star and one of the very best players in the game for close to two decades. Between 1955 and 1975, he was voted to the all-star team every single year. Despite putting up outstanding numbers year after year, he never quite garnered the attention he deserved. He wasn't on kind of a major big city baseball team. And so he definitely flew under the radar for a long time. But, you know, this is also in the days where we didn't have, you know, online and, and television and things like that. So, you know, it took a long time for people to kind of discover this amazing baseball player. The eyes of the sports world were rarely focused on Atlanta, but that was about to change, thanks to Hank. 
Year after year, Aaron had been among the league leaders in home runs. For you know, more than 18 years, he had 30 home runs you know, a season. That's like an incomparable feat, and I think no one has been able to, to copy that or to match that. Yet it wasn't until the early 70s that fans and the press began noticing that he was within striking distance of the home run record set by the legendary Babe Ruth. Being on the verge of baseball immortality for breaking one of the most hallowed records in sports should have been a wonderful time for Aaron, but it wasn't. He received racially charged hate letters and death threats during the time leading up to the 1974 season. On April 8, 1974, Hank Aaron smashed his 715th home run, making him baseball's all-time home run team. It was an amazing night because leading up to that, Hank Aaron had gotten tremendous numbers of death threats from people who did not want to see a black man break Babe Ruth's record. In 1976, at the age of 42, Aaron retired from Major League Baseball with 755 career home runs. He had made a record 24 All-Star Game appearances, won an MVP, a World Series championship, and was the all-time leader in RBI. After walking away from the game as a player, he went on to work for the Atlanta Braves. He also became a powerful voice for the rights of minorities in Major League Baseball. In 1982, Aaron was enshrined in Baseball's Hall of Fame. In 1999, he was voted to Major League Baseball's All-Century Team. Since Aaron had retired, the game had changed dramatically. More and more home runs were being hit, and by 2007, his home run record was being challenged by Barry Bonds. Rumors of alleged steroid use by Bonds and other players of the current era tainted the pursuit of the record. In 2007, Barry Bonds hit his 756 home run, passing Aaron as the new all-time leader. Although Aaron had been supplanted by Bonds, there seemed to be a new appreciation for what Hank had accomplished during his career. A cloud of suspicion hung over the statistics compiled by Bonds and his contemporaries. Well, I think, you know, everyone kind of you know, talked about steroids and baseball and Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez. And, you know, you think of Hank Aaron, you know, not using steroids, not using anything to enhance his game. More than 30 years after breaking Babe Ruth's record, he was truly being recognized as one of the greatest ever to play the game. While Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier by becoming the first African-American Major League Baseball player, Hank Aaron became the first African-American in the record books. The greatest record of all time. Home runs. Oh, what a, quite a tribute that's to Hank Aaron, a baseball legend. You know, as he was playing ball back in the day, you know, it was a lot of challenges. And that's what our program is about, being free on the inside. You know, a lot of times people try to keep you from reaching your destiny, from reaching your goal. And that freedom there, you know, the... the Autobiography stated that he faced challenges. People were writing racial le uh, letters to him, and people were, uh, you know, threatening him. But yet, he still found comfort in pursuing his goal. I want you to find comfort in pursuing your goal, whatever it may be. Do it unto the Lord. Okay, I'm gonna say Amen right there. 
but you know, I thought about Hank Aaron as a you know when we when I was growing up, and I'm saying we as a young man that would play sport, there wasn't very many black athletes to look at, you know, because uh, in particular sport, I remember baseball. You know, baseball was something that took black men a long time to break into it, and I remember how I shared earlier that how I wanted to play baseball, but I didn't have any idols to look at. Cause I didn't think black, I didn't think you actually could get paid for playing baseball, and I was good. I was a good fielder. I was a good uh, catcher. I played second base. I played shortstop. I played center field. And I exceeded in all those positions there. But I didn't think you could get paid for it. It was like just playing for fun. And I'm going to uh, share with you some things from the Black Negro League where the men they played. And those men were very gifted and talented. And a lot of those men are lost in the history books because people didn't take time out to give them recognition there. But I'm going to bring to your attention about some other athletes that were great. You know, I thought about uh, when I was a lot younger, there used to be this guy, uh, uh, what was he? Uh, he was. Uh, uh, he, he he played his, He played sports, and people were fascinated because he was able to run track. He was able to play baseball. He was able to play football, and people were blown away. So the news media were blown away, and the teams were blown away, and we thought that was natural. And when I grew up, you know, we knew how to play Excel in all those sports. There, I can't call. I can't recall this young man that. If y'all know it, give me a call at number. Uh, Three nine one nine eight two forty one twenty six. Yeah, I think it was um uh what was it uh Herschel was it Herschel Walker? Uh uh it might have been Herschel it might have been Herschel Walker. But this guy here was excelling in all the sports. See, I may be wrong on that, so y'all can call it and correct me on that. But this young man, he excelled in everything that he had done, and people were actually blown away about that. And when, as I stated earlier, when we grew up, we were good at everything that we did concerning sports. And now I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna shift gears here for a minute. We're gonna play something from the Black Negro League here. And Tyler, this one is uh is called. Um, only the ball was white, you know. And this is a history of the Black Negro Baseball League, and they had some superstars in there, you know. And we thank God for those men that that was teaching us, regardless of what's going on in society, we still can be successful at our chosen career, at our chosen uh, career, being free on the inside. Now we're gonna play an excerpt from this here. This title once again, Only the Ball is White. Philadelphia Stars, the Homestead Grays, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the Chicago American Giants, the Baltimore Light Giants, the uh, Cleveland Buckeyes, Birmingham Bounce, Black Bears, Memphis Red Sox, the Kansas City Monarchs. Black baseball talent was never wasted. It blossomed in Negro leagues. Every spring, a caravan of black teams crisscrossed the country to play baseball. They took on all comers in major league ballparks while white teams were on the road, and on the smallest backstreet diamonds. And when the seasons changed, the teams drifted south to play in Mexico and the Caribbean. Black baseball wasn't just a summer game. No, I never had an idea of a major league. I never had an idea. All I wanted to do was play baseball. And I believed that I could play baseball in the Black League. In the early part of the century, black baseball was loose. There was no organization. Barnstorming teams often folded on the road if they couldn't make meal money. 
There were no rules to stop a player from jumping teams for the promise of more money. And while the diamond exploits of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig made them rich and famous, black ball players of equal ability had to survive on a dollar a day. But in the 1920s, Rube Foster took control. As manager of the Chicago American Giants, he organized black baseball's first viable league, which eventually evolved into the Negro National and American Leagues in the 1930s. Foster was black baseball's founding father. They were all super teams. There were no just bunch of boys just gotten together to throw a ball or swing a bat. They were really magnificent ball clubs. Eva Manley's life was black baseball. Her husband Abe was a gambler, a hustler, who owned the Newark Eagles in the 1930s and 40s. Mrs. Manley took an active part in the team business, often telling the field manager who to pitch on a particular day. There's no question it was an accepted fact that Negroes just were discriminated against, and particularly in the South. And I think everybody just took it in stride. They just didn't do, uh, let it affect them one way or the other. Thank God we had the Negro Leagues, or the Black Leagues, as you call them. Then they were the Negro Leagues. Thank God we had the Negro Leagues then to give guys like me a chance. It was a sort of a training ground. It was like all we had. In 1944, Don Newcomb began his baseball career as a 17-year-old pitcher with Eva Manley's Newark Eagles. Newcomb later became one of the first black ball players to play in the major leagues. That's why I never went to a major league game. Major league baseball didn't interest me because we had nobody there to look up to. I never had an idol in baseball. Never had an idol until Jackie Robinson came along, Roy Campanella. Now, that's the strangest thing to say. But I never heard a Negro ball player in those days talk about playing in the major leagues because we always played them at the end of the season. They made up all-star teams and some of them intact. And we always beat them. <laughs> the records will show that. We beat them always the majority of the games. David Melodger, Gentleman Dave, played for the Indianapolis ABCs and Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants in the 1920s. He was one of the best infielders of all time, and later, one of the game's cagiest managers. I never sat in any but one place during all of my managerial career. I never stood up on the field. I never moved my seat. I never went any place during a ball game except in that one spot where every player could find me on the field. And I directed every play. The big event every year in black baseball was the East-West All-Star Game, which began in 1933 at Comiskey Park in Chicago. That was the same year the Major Leagues held their first All-Star Game, also at Comiskey Park. The East-West Game attracted large crowds that came to see black baseball's best. The game proved that great baseball talent, despite phantom status, did exist in the Negro Leagues. Oh, we had men about a, we had men about a hundred could have made the big league for that concern. About a hundred, not about a four twos or threes. About a hundred could they had more they had a lot of shots of pages out there. Men could throw the ball hard at me. 
Many say that he is the greatest pitcher that ever played the game. Satchel Paige is a living legend. He dominated black baseball in the 1930s and the 40s. Satchel pitched in more than 2,000 ball games, give or take a few hundred. But he still had to wait until he was 42 years old to become the Major League's oldest rookie in 1948. And anybody ever seen me throw, they tell you I could throw pretty straight. I couldn't. I came up from down in Mobile when I was throwing rocks, like you heard them say. I could throw rocks straight. I used to kill blood with rocks. There's no maybe so about it. Their baseball skills were magnificent, but the life was gritty. An endless chain of dirt roads, colored hotels, and greeneries. Negro baseball, like all of black existence at the time, was relegated into its own isolated world. I, I don't like to talk to people about my baseball days because they were weird so far as you youngsters are concerned. And you can't believe that some of the playing conditions that we had to go through. Ted Page, a laggy left-handed outfielder, was one of black baseball's quickest base runners in the 1930s. He is best known as a member of the New York Black Yankees and the Pittsburgh Crawfords. You asked me about traveling. And I'll tell you, yeah, we ride all night. But you, that doesn't explain it. That don't really explain what the problem that we had. We ride all night. So what? You ride all night. A lot of people ride all night. But this, you, you can't gather really with the problem we had or how tough it was. And to us, it wasn't tough. I mean, it was part of our life. We could stay in good hotel, you know. No blacks were staying in good hotels at that time. And um, we stayed in rooming houses and around in, in, uh, in the residential section. Buck Leonard of the Homestead Grays was called the Black Lou Gehrig in the 1930s and 40s, but he never shared Gehrig's celebrity. Leonard played a great defensive first base, besides displaying awesome ability at the plate. Even though he never played in the major leagues, Buck Leonard was elected to the Major League Hall of Fame by a special vote in 1972. And in some of those places where we stayed, we're staying in rooming houses, bedrooms were bad. I remember in New Orleans one night, our... Uh, we were in the bed, and as soon as we got in the bed, the bed bug was waiting for us. And they, when we turned out the light down, they started biting. I don't think you can hardly name a, a small town or coal mining town uh, that I didn't play in. We even made baseball ball diamonds. Went to uh, little towns and made baseball diamonds, and the fence was the cause. The cause uh, just got all the way around us, way out in our field out there, and made a fence, and we would pass the hat around. We love to play. We want to play. Baseball was our game. And uh, you know, we hated the conditions, certainly. We hated not getting but 60 cents a day on which to eat, 75 cents and all like that. But we loved to play. We wanted to play. When you're doing something that you love to do, there's nothing lousy about it. And to me, I thought it was the first step toward going to the top of the world. The black newspapers called five-foot, eight-inch Jimmy Crutchfield the mighty might from Moberly, Missouri. Crutchfield played right field in the 1930s and 40s for the American Giants and the Pittsburgh Crawfords. 
and then you've got to leave home plate with the idea of going to second base. Otherwise, you can't run to first base, and then if the guy bobbles the ball, make up your mind to go to second. You've got to leave home plate with the intention of going to second base. That's what they call coming to the park to play ball. They put me in the ball game to kids, too. In fact, that was, I think, my first night game. They had Little Life in Beach Haven, New Jersey. And I caught, and I'll never forget riding to New York after the game in the bus, and they were getting ready to go through what, the Holland Tunnel. So the other players on the team asked me, did I have a gas mask? And I said, no. So well, you know, going through the tunnel, you need a gas mask. So... Life was always tough on a rookie, even if your name was Roy Campanella. Cappy began his career with the Baltimore Elite Giants of the Negro National League in 1937. Ten years later, he went on to become a Hall of Fame catcher with the Brooklyn Dodgers before a paralyzing auto accident cut short his career in 1958. I was 15 now. So then at the hotel... That Saturday morning when I got up, so what, the general manager of the team, McGowan, asked me, did I make up my bed? I said, no. So you leave a bad reputation for the team. you got to go upstairs and make your bed up. So I got the elevator, and upstairs I went and made my bed up. I come back down. So he said, look, I have a bucket here. Go downstairs and get me a bucket of steam. So I said, okay. So on my way, I said, how am I going to get a bucket of steam? And that's when I started to realize these guys were pulling something on me. Uh, one other thing, too, you know, they used to dust us off a lot, you know, threw the ball out of face, head, or anywhere, see. And uh, we had that to think about. And uh, at that time, we weren't wearing any helmets. And then neither were they putting uh, pictures out of the ball game for throwing that if you were finding them. And uh, we had... We had to learn how to duck as well as hit. So that put some mess on your mind, see. Yeah, I think I punched a guy once. I punched a ball player one time. And by the way, it was down in Long Island who was playing. I punched a ball player. Played first base when I went down. Instead of him tagging the bag this way, he stuck his foot out and I went over. And I tripped over him. And I come back to the bag and racked him up. <laughs> there will be nobody fighting on this ball club. I said, we're going to be friends. We're going to be brothers. That was the first lecture that I gave them. And I was made manager. And I said, the first thing, there will be no dissension to cause anybody to want to fight each other. And I said, the first man that strikes the first blow is fired. Then <laughs> he'll never play baseball on the American Giants or on any other team in the league. If he starts a fight or anything, I said, we're going to be brothers. And it was just that way. Black ball players shared a camaraderie that was common among athletes. And the black leagues represented a special fraternity for those who were blessed with baseball ability but forced to live behind the color line. There is one man's story that stands out as a symbol of all hidden baseball genius that developed behind that color line. His name was Josh Gibson, and he was a baseball artist. He was a game's greatest.
greatest hitter, better than Babe Ruth. His tape measure homers often exceeded 500 feet. His home run production soared to 60 and 70 a season. Josh Gibson's life is a story of a man born too soon. His abilities eroded before he ever got a chance to play in the major leagues. From 1930 to 1946, Josh found an identity in baseball. He was born to play the game. Josh was one of the greatest hitters of all time. If only people could have seen Josh hit the baseball. Now, he was the greatest hitter that we ever ever had in the black leagues. He was the greatest hitter. He could hit the longest ball of anybody that we had in the black league. The best hitter I've ever seen. I, and I, I being a pitcher, uh, would, would, should be reluctant to say that, but he is. Uh, he, and he was the best hitter I've ever seen. I've seen Ted Williams, Sam Eagle, William Hayes, and Henry Aaron. I've never seen a hit like Josh Gibson. Because you could fool Josh Gibson with a pitch, and he could swing, be swinging the bat, and his momentum would, would make one hand fly off the bat. With one hand, he could hit a home run, hit the ball right center field, and hit a home run. And I've seen it happen many times. It happened against me. Because hit and throw and run. Yes, sir. The first time I saw Josh was in 1944. Well, he was a outstanding star. He was an outstanding star. And I'm a young third baseman in the league, and we playing him in Washington, D.C. And uh, I don't know Josh from nobody else. I just hear the guys saying to Josh, I'm with the Birmingham Black Bands. Sam Hairston, now a White Sox farm instructor, remembers the first time he got a good look at Gibson. Bunt signal was a in, in order, you know, and uh, Josh was up. So I don't know Josh from nobody else. So I breaks in for the bunt, and Josh don't swing. He hollered to the manager. He said, hey, what y'all trying to do, get this guy killed? And the manager looked and saw me. He said, time, get back, get back, way on the edge of the grass. And I got on back on the edge of the grass, and Josh swung. And uh, the ball, I did like this, and the ball went right across my chest. A one-hopper to the left field. <laughs> right cross. If I had been in, I'd have got killed. As a youngster, coming along and being able to play against a guy like Josh Gibson, I looked up to him and always will. Oh, man, he's awesome. I remember one year in Mexico, we were playing, and we had a Mexican fellow pitching for us. And I told her, I, we get together, you know, we talk about the hitters in the clubhouse, just like anything. And I said, now, this guy, you got to pitch away from him, down. We keep the ball down on him all the time. Keep the ball down. I said, don't get it up, because if you do, he can hurt you. Quincy Troop was a solid hitting catcher and a manager in the Negro Leagues for the Cleveland Buckeyes. And for 15 years, he told pitchers what not to throw to Gibson. So he wanted to throw the curveball. And in center field, it was 450. I, I got the picture in my scrapbook, shows you center field, 450. Uh, behind that is about fluffing here, almost across the street over there. And a Coca-Cola sign. That's where he hit it. Off of this guy, and he had to know that he would have been 
a superstar in Major League Baseball. He had to realize that himself. He didn't do too much talking about what he's going to do. He wasn't the the braggart type of kid, you know. You find guys who will say, I'm what they're going to do long before they ever did it, and maybe they'll never make it. But not not Josh. He wasn't that type. He went to Mexico and played. And when Josh come back, uh, he took sick. And uh, I talked to him a lot in Washington. But I never could find out exactly what went wrong with Josh. He got to be alcoholic and all of that. I think just drank and that's probably what happened. All of a sudden, if you were a great star and you thought that you were going to go on forever and you're not prepared for anything else in life and then you find that you don't have it anymore, you don't have any money, all of that works on the guy's mind. Josh Gibson died of a stroke in the winter of 1946. He was 35 years old. The color line collapsed in that same year. Branch Rickey, owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, signed a second-string infielder named Jackie Robinson from the Kansas City Monarchs. Finally, black ball players could get a chance to prove themselves in the big leagues. But for many, the occasion was only a sad reminder that they had been born too soon. Branch Rickey Jr., a Pittsburgh Pirate executive, remembers why his grandfather took a chance on Robinson. I have to say that it was a hunch. Uh, Robinson had the college education. He had the, the exposure to the military. Uh, he had operated and functioned in uh, formal systems, and he had been a star already. He had been an established star uh, in his college football days. And then I think Grandpa was in his personal uh, interview with him. He was just so impressed with him as a person. I'm so sure about that, that it was not just that he wanted a, a colored man at the time. He picked Jackie Robinson because Jackie Robinson was a college man and he had a nice, good contact. But the thing that I'm sure made them decide to put Negroes in the major leagues was money. I, I would think that Jackie was an ideal man because I can think of some of the guys in that wouldn't have done as well mentally, because I can think of some guys that would not have taken the abuse that Jackie took. I know Jackie was the right guy, and I would say a thousand times, I'm glad it wasn't under me, because I couldn't have took it. I know, I, I know good and well I couldn't have took it. We had to, we had to, we had to endure the the uh, the uh, uncomfortable uh, things that came into our lives, because man, we had a job to do. And uh, Jackie was uh, was the father. He was the father of, of the whole program. And what he did and what Roy Campanella did and what Don Newcomb did uh, was predicated upon uh, our abilities as men to to, uh, to do the job that Branch Rickey had put his life and reputation on the line to do. And uh, we, we, we had to take it. Branch Rickey had more to offer those 16 prejudice owners than just a little black boy. He had all those 50,000 black fans. So that's what put him in the baby league. And as soon as, as that happened, what happened? The major leagues went after all of the ball players. 
they've <laughs> raided all the Negro teams uh, to get the ball players that they knew were able to play Major League Baseball. The day that Mr. Ricky took those boys, the fans all deserted us to go see the Negro players on the white teams. And it, I begged Dave to quit that na- that first year. I begged him, oh, oh we dropped another $20,000. That was a nice little piece of money in those days. <laughs> and he was a gambler, so, of course, to him it didn't mean anything, and he wouldn't quit. You know, very few people know that Jackie came near to having nervous breakdown after the 1947 season because of the uh, abuse that he had to take, and he couldn't release this, this inner feeling because... Uh, of, the, of the very fact that Rand Tricky told me you have, to, you have to keep your mouth shut. I often think now in my wheelchair, back, supposing it wasn't a success when the Dodgers first integrated baseball with black players, what would it be today if it wasn't a success then? I don't know. Several years ago, I was talking with a kid I had my own. I was up in Michigan during the summer. I had my glove. I was talking with the kid, and, and uh, I say, a lady told the boy, I said, oh, he used to be a baseball player. Then the kid started talking with me. Kids, I never heard of you. <laughs> I said, well, I came along about the time of Jackie Robinson. The guy said, Jackie Robinson? He hadn't heard of Jackie Robinson. All he knew was Willie Mays. Suffering from the depletion of talent, the Negro Leagues died in the early 1960s. Like Josh Gibson, its demise went as unnoticed as its heyday. Black ball players lived and loved their game. And today they still speak about baseball with a passion unspoiled by the years. Because that's the homestead grade, and that's my number, 32. Now this is a flannel uniform, and it's hot as the devil during the summer. And you can see the, the pants, the kind of pants that we use, they had rubber in the bottom of them, and the blouse, and the folks still... Kidding me about it now. When I go to old time again, I wear this, and uh, they are uh, still kidding me about how the pants look on me and since they blouse. Listen, if I had them to live over again, uh, I would do it. I had more fun in life, I believe, and as anybody in the world with less money, and I saw more of the world and uh, saw as much as the world as anybody got as much money as Rockefeller. If you want me to tell you the truth, and if I had to pay the money. To go over those spots, I'd have to have me a truck or something like that, uh, you know, care behind me uh, the places that I had been. And when the ball went out of the park, I got the biggest thrill. <laughs> there was something about that ball sailing out of the park that just, I don't know what it did to you. Uh, Every time I uh, look on TV or pick up the paper and read about some kid that I've had something to do with this is the hey this is the thing that really makes me proud of myself I had a dream the other night I singled off of a left handed pitcher 
across second base, and I just kept running, but I never could get to first base. That's tough, I'm telling you. I just kept running, and I kept running, and I knew the guy was going to throw me out eventually, but I couldn't get to first base. Oh, what a great, great, great autobiographer of a black uh, Negro baseball league. And they're talking about some of the old patriarchs. And I just drew straight off of that. I just, you know, as I listen to that, I just think about my own plight and the things that I struggle with. You know, sometimes, you know, we take things are hard. But imagine living back then, trying to pursue the things that's dear to your heart, the things that they went through. You know, I, I thought about the young man that said that uh, he went to a hotel and it was full of bed bugs, you know. But that's where they treated uh, black uh, athletes and black people in general, uh, they couldn't go to places that was just well kept. And then we couldn't complain about it, you know. But yet they played. They played with passion. And there's one other thing that one of the interviewers said, that he played for the love of the game. Oh, my God. I think about that now. You know, uh, so many people have lost the love. they pursuing that money. But these men, in the midst of everything that was going on, they still love the game. What I'm saying that, hey, we even went to places they didn't even have a baseball field, so we just created. Something. I thought about when we were little kids. You know, can you imagine grown men get out there making up a, a baseball diamond? It's something that we used to do as little kids, you know, and just think these men were still doing it. They were grown. They had their own kids and their own family, but yet they still played the game of in their youth, and they still did it to the best of their ability, and they weren't accepted in some places. And I was just making some notes here, and it was saying that, uh, that Satchel Page was 42 years old before he was accepted into the Major League Baseball. You know, they say he was like the oldest rookie. Can you imagine? We we at the top of our game, but yet people are still calling us boy. You and the uh, you the CEO of this company here, but they still calling you boy. You over management, but they still call you boy. You over the production line, but they still call you boy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you know who I am? I'm free on the inside. I can do these things here because I have a passion. You know, we live long enough that, you know, no matter how much money you get, if you ain't, you know, it don't really matter if you ain't, if your heart ain't in it. It don't really matter if you're, you're being disrespected. I done had various jobs, and some of the jobs that I've, I just walked out on and I quit. I left in good standing, but I got away from that job because I, was, I wasn't being respected. But I was still able to do the things that God had put to my heart to do. I, I encourage you to continue to follow your passion. We, we dedicate this show to Hank Aaron. He passed, but he was a ball, uh, ball player among ball players, and his passion was to be successful at the things that he had done. And we're going to continue this line of interview here with uh, – with another uh, great legend, the Satchel Page, I believe that's who we're going to bring up right now. And so what we're going to do, we're going to just uh, listen to that. And I'm, I'm bringing up all these uh, baseball players that's in the 30s and the 40s because next month is Black History Month. And so we're going to round that off with our current baseball players and current athletes at this time here. But it's good to remember things of old. It's good to remember things of old because that's when we voted. I hope you voted. Did you vote? That's why we vote. That's why we petition. That's why we do the things that we do because our grandparents them set the standard. You know, where we could do things there because of our uh, uh, because of the color of our skin, our grandparents and our parents and, and they parents they set a standard. They said, "Son, you can be successful at whatever you can uh, perceive in your mind here if you do it honorable, honorable and pleasing unto God." And you guess what? It works. It works. 
So I encourage you today, follow your passion, follow your heart desire, and don't hurt anyone along the way. Being free on the inside, uh, just doing the things that God put to your hand and your heart to do. And, uh, again, the calling number is 310-982-4126. You two can call in and voice your opinion regarding some things that you may have heard this uh, morning. But if not, just continue to listen, because I bet you know someone, family member, relative that played baseball before, that that was good at it, but they never did get that recognition. They could have been an all-star on any of the major league teams. They could have been a manager on any of the teams. They, you know, and they could have been, but just because of they, the the time that they grew up in, and the and the times that they spent trying to develop their talent and trying to take care of their house. You know, a lot of times we as great athletes, I'm talking about men now, we can't pursue our goal because it caused us to go to work. You know, I played baseball. I was good at it. If I knew that they was paying money, top dollar, for baseball players, I would have pursued that, but I had to go to work. I had to help my mother out. I had to watch over my brothers, so, so it allowed me. Uh, so it kept me from pursuing my goal in playing baseball. I still love the game. I watch it, you know. But I, I, I know uh, that I... I didn't pursue that because I had other things that were more valuable to me at that time. So we as men and as parents and as grandfathers, we have no reason to be sad or disappointed. We did not miss out on anything because we did things to the best of our ability and we took care of our household. I want you men to know right today that whatever you done, God is going to reward you for it in a good sense. I'm talking about those things that you've done that, that you put your career aside for your family. God is going to reward you for those things. Matter of fact, he may be rewarding you right now. You know, and we're going to go ahead and continue with our uh, our documentary on our uh, black athletes. And we're going to wrap this up with some more on, uh, on, uh, on the great Hank Aaron because we want to dedicate this show to him. And I got a communication from the... Uh, the guy that I was talking about that just could do all that he plays. Uh, let's see, he played. Uh, he did track and field. He played football. He played baseball. Guess who it is? Come on now, help me out, help me out, help me out. It was Bo Jackson. You remember that old slogan, Bo knows. You know, and, and I always, I always smile when they used to, uh, when the guy used to come to work and said, "Man, Bo Jackson was doing this and Bo Jackson was doing that," and I just smile because guess what? We knew people in our own, uh, in our own surrounding that could do those things. So remember how we went to high school and we had these brothers that could play basketball. He was an outstanding basketball player. He was an outstanding football player. He was an outstanding baseball player. He was well rounded in sports. And that's something that we always do. Uh, you know, they always tell you just focus on one sport. You know, either you be a baseball player or you be a football player, but the two should never meet. But guess what? When we were younger, we did all those things there because that was helping us get through school. That was helping us develop. And we had coaches that seen not only about our development as an athlete, but also our development as in character as a person. I recall some coaches in my life that if I didn't do the right thing, they would get on me. You know, don't worry about getting home because guess what? They're going to already let my parents know that I'm not acting right. I'm cutting up, but he's going to discipline me now. And I think so much of him uh, disciplined me the best way that he knew how. It made me who I am today. Our young men, they're looking for some man, father, figure, or mentor to speak into their life, to discipline them 
uh, you know, not in a cruel way, but in a loving way, to let them know that they could be successful. I do juvenile ministry. I'm not doing much now because of the pandemic, but when I was sharing with the young men and we were talking about life skills, brother, what do you want to do from here? You're in juvenile. you got your whole future ahead of you, but yet your past is pursuing you and then caught up with you because it got you in lockdown. But what do you want to do from here? You know, what about a barber? You know, we're talking about career. And, you know, you're talking about the scientists and the doctors. All those things are well and good. But think about what you could do today. You like cutting hair? You like playing video games? Maybe you could open up a barbershop. Maybe you could be a, a, a graphic designer. What you like to uh, you like motor co- cars and motor and motorcycle? Maybe you could be a mechanic. You know those things that young men can put their hands on and say, "Man, I love this here, man. I can stay up all night working on this project, and I'm not even getting paid for it. I'm doing it for the love of it." And that's what our black patriarchs in baseball was doing. They was playing for the love of the game. And we're going to stop here for a minute and give you an opportunity to just reflect on what you heard. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, bring up some Satchel Page and let you continue to be encouraged by what you're hearing. Ian King Tut. And we just had uh, that show in uh, the House of David. Then I would give it the House of David a lot of time and play Pep. I don't know if you've seen them play that or not, but they can. Well, it's, it's really fun. You never will keep up with the ball for as that concerned as three men get in a row. And you can't keep up with the ball. It's all between the legs, over the head, and everywhere else there. We're going to come back with that a little bit. You know, a lot of things we did back when we first come in, the big league said it was we was clowning, but I see they, they did a lot of things that we did back there then. And when Bill Vick come in with the – uh, firecrackers and things. They couldn't see no sense in it when he's giving away orchids and everything. Now everybody's copping off him with the school board and everything else. You understand? Me? It's just a time for them to do that, which they didn't know no better. When you would call in the outfield, say, well, I, I will play only with the infield, that, that was a form of clowning, wasn't it? Yeah, well, well, that, well, yeah, I, 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 I give you that. Well, we was drawing, too, because if I got by with that, they would send to the next con, which I did get by with it every time, but I'd catch my man up there, catch my right-hand man. And you catch a right-hand man up there, and when my infield come in and start to talking to him, and I'd still be pitching to the batter and strike him out, well, see, that'll get to the next town the next day. See, all our towns about two and 300 miles, and then we'd have bigger crowds, and that got all over that's an interview that was Satchel Page talking about how he was enjoying the love of the game, how he was out there messing around and having a good time with it. And I love that. I love that. I love that because he said, hey, this was fun to me. So go ahead and chime in and listen to this here interview, and we'll be back with you shortly. Come around the mountain and talk to me while I'll be pitching. Satchel, we heard a lot about the lighting system that the monarchs used. Oh, with the poles? Yeah. Yeah, we the first one invented that. We had uh those big engines like you see that pump water, and we had uh, two, we had four big trucks, and uh, we had our own lights. And we start those dynamos, and I guess these lights was about uh, no more than 15 feet or 16 feet up. But you could see an infield. Well, the ball was hitting off of you. <laughs> Shame on you. You couldn't see nobody. And why the people would come? 
hope you enjoyed part of the interview there with Satchel Page. I just give you a little rundown on what he was going through, you know, back then. And, you know, as I think about those things right there, how we were being very creative at what we was doing, but yet we had to learn to master our skill and our craft. Uh, you know, you live long enough to know that regardless of the thing that you have developed in your own career, that people are not uh, – uh, not giving you credit for, but I encourage you to keep going, keep pressing on, keep being all you can be. And we're going to continue with our interview. And we pray that you're being blessed by what you heard today and that you too can just draw strength off of, of what's going on here. And we got another interview coming up, and this one here is called a Black Diamond. Uh, a Black Man Diamond. still tell stories about how he beat out a one hopper to the pitcher or scored from first on a bunt. One first baseman told me about the time he tried to pick Cool Papa off with a throw from the catcher, and as he reached down to slap Black the bat, Diamond, cool he knew Papa. there was nobody there. When he looked up, there was Cool Papa smiling on third base. Naturally, Cool Papa Bell is in the Hall of Fame, even though his career ended the year before integration. Still, he made his mark on the majors. It was he who taught Los Angeles Dodger Maury Wills the fine points of base stealing which accounted for a major league record of 104 in 1962. Well, I talked with Cool Papa in St. Louis, where he was working as a city hall guard. I found he was modest about his accomplishments. The only thing I see, I, I stole 175 bases in one year. All right, well, we were playing around 180 out of 90 games a season. All right, but now, by me stealing all of those bases, that didn't make me the best base runner. Uh, I broke all the records for his running, second bases. All right. Now, we had some ball players that could steal uh, bases, and it wasn't so fast. It's kind of hard. And, and, well, were you, were you, um, you were very fast, weren't you? Yeah, I was fast. Oh. You also had good reflexes. Well, that's what you have to have in baseball. You have to watch the moves of the pitcher. Uh, if a pitcher got a good move, you can't get a good lead off of this pitcher. A catcher that don't have a strong arm, you don't have to get a big lead. But you always strive to get a big lead on any of them because you can't beat the ball down there. But you can steal on uh, sometimes a shorter lead on some catchers you can't other. From what you saw of the white ball players, in the major leagues during this period when you were at your top, yeah. if you had been where you should have been in the major leagues, how well would you have done? We had major league ball fields then, but they didn't allow them to play. See, but we didn't get no recognition. Now, they only say we had just a few good ball players. We had a whole lot of good ball players. Uh, just as good or better than the one black or white that ever played. All right, that was a great interview there from Cool Papa, Papa uh, Bell, uh, Jody Johnson, Black Baseball player. Had a nickname for him called, uh, you know, Cool Papa because Homer was good at what he does. Remember, he said, hey, wait a minute, I wasn't the only one that was exceeding and excelling out there. We had a whole lot more. Remember, you're not the only one doing what you do. There's a lot of other people out there. But, yes, you had a favor that comes from above. You had a favor of God. So I want you to continue to be successful in whatever you do because guess what? 
Guess what? You're free on the inside, and who the sun set free is free indeed. We're gonna wind right. We're gonna wind up this here portion of our show with a uh, with an autobiography of a uh, uh, of of a uh, host here today. Not our host. I'm sorry. Well, who are we dedicating this show to? I'm sorry. I was looking at some of the communication. Hank Aaron here is that is coming up here. We had our phone lines are lit up, and people are just um, giving up some acknowledgement. And some people saying my granddaddy played him. My great granddaddy played, and they're giving us some years that they played. And I want you to go ahead and send us some information also on on Blog Talk Radio for, uh, forward slash uh, Free on the Inside, Lewis, and let us know what year that your loved one may have played baseball, and we can just re- re- uh, remember those with a smile on our face. And here we go again. We're gonna wind, uh, wind up our show here with another in- with a uh, the interview of Hank Aaron here, talk autobiography, and then. We're going to come back with you shortly. He's a Hall of Famer who owns some of the most prestigious records in baseball. Hank Aaron is arguably the greatest baseball hitter of all time. Yet it took breaking one of the most important records in sports for Hammer and Hank Aaron to get the credit he deserved. Henry Louis Aaron was born in Mobile, Alabama on February 5, 1934, the third of eight children of Herbert and Estella Aaron. From a young age, his focus was on the baseball field, not the classroom. He transferred from a segregated school to attend the Allen Institute, which had an organized baseball program. Hank's abilities on the baseball diamond were apparent early on. By the age of 18, he earned a spot on the Indianapolis Clowns of the... Spectrum Mobile has 5G nationwide included in every plan. We got a little commercial coming up here now, but we'll be back with that interview, that autobiography, now. Negro and got the attention of a major league scout. In 1954, he made his debut with the Milwaukee Braves. Although the color barrier had been broken by Jackie Robinson seven years earlier, African-American players still had to work extra hard to prove their worth on the field. In 1957, Aaron had his breakout season, winning the National League MVP award. The 23-year-old led the league in home runs and RBIs while leading the Braves to a World Series title. In 1966, the Braves moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta. Though the team's address changed, Aaron's stellar performance on the field continued. By the early 70s, Aaron had been a perennial all-star and one of the very best players in the game for close to two decades. Between 1955 and 1975, he was voted to the all-star team every single year. Despite putting up outstanding numbers year after year, he never quite garnered the attention he deserved. He wasn't on kind of a major big city baseball team, and so he definitely flew under the radar for a long time, but, you know, this was also in the days where we didn't have, you know, online and and television and things like that, so, you know, it took a long time for people to kind of discover this amazing baseball player. The eyes of the sports world were really focused on Atlanta, but that was about to change, thanks to Hank. Year after year, Aaron had been among the league leaders in home runs. For, you know, more than 18 years, he had 30 home runs, you know, a season. That's like an incomparable feat, and I think no one has been able to to copy that or to match that. Yet it wasn't until the early 70s that fans and the press began noticing that he was within striking distance of the home run record set by the legendary Babe Ruth. Being on the verge of baseball immortality for breaking one of the most hallowed records in sports should have been a wonderful time for Aaron, but it wasn't. 
We received racially charged hate letters and death threats during the time leading up to the 1974 season. On April 8, 1974, Hank Aaron smashed his 715th home run, making him baseball's all-time home run king. It was an amazing night because leading up to that, Hank Aaron had gotten tremendous numbers of death threats from people who did not want to see a black man break Dave Ruth's record. In 1976, at the age of 42, Aaron retired from Major League Baseball with 755 career home runs. He had made a record 24 All-Star Game appearances, won an MVP, a World Series championship, and was the all-time leader in RBI. After walking away from the game as a player, he went on to work for the Atlanta Braves. He also became a powerful voice for the rights of minorities in Major League Baseball. In 1982, Aaron was enshrined in Baseball's Hall of Fame. In 1999, he was voted to Major League Baseball's All-Century Team. Since Aaron had retired, the game had changed dramatically. More and more home runs were being hit, and by 2007, his home run record was being challenged by Barry Bonds. Rumors of alleged steroid use by Bonds and other players of the current era tainted the pursuit of the record. In 2007, Barry Bonds hit his 756 home run passing Aaron as the new all-time leader. Although Aaron had been supplanted by Bonds, there seemed to be a new appreciation for what Hank had accomplished during his career. A cloud of suspicion hung over the statistics compiled by Bonds and his contemporaries. Well, I think, you know, everyone kind of, you know, talks about steroids and baseball and Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez, and, you know, you think of Hank Aaron, you know, not using steroids, not using anything to enhance his game. More than 30 years after breaking Babe Ruth's record, he was truly being recognized as one of the greatest ever to play the game. While Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier by becoming the first African-American Major League Baseball player, Hank Aaron became the first African-American in the record books. The greatest record of all time, home runs. All right, what a great interview that we had there. We pray that you enjoyed our segment, a dedication to Hank Aaron, baseball player, legend, and civil rights activist, and how he set this tempo and set the standard, how he did it with pure ability. They said that he didn't use any of the steroids or no enhancement that baseball players are using, acceptable and non-acceptable. You know, it was just a God-given talent, and he was very honest and modest about it. Think about that. Your God-given talent. I want you to be very honest and acceptable of those things. You don't have to use no special enhancement because guess what? You was made in the image of our Heavenly Father. And guess what? He don't make no mistakes. As you think about how good God has been and as you reflect on the autobiography of Hank Aaron, I want you to be very mindful. that You know, these are some things that's, that we can't just overlook. Because of what he did and what other men and women did in that era, in that time, allowed us to do what we're doing today. Allowed us to go to some place that we uh, that we couldn't go or we were forbidden to go to. Allowed us to eat in some restaurants. Allowed us to do a lot of things. Let's don't take this for granted. You know, we just came out of a terrible situation last year with the unemployment, the social injustice, the political climate. Let's not... Never forget that men and women have, have paid an ultimate price for us to be where we are today. 
Hank Aaron, other men and women allowed us to do this today. Let's talk, you may not even like baseball, but you get you you have to respect what he done and the way he done it. And your son and your daughter could be able to do greater things. I want you to enjoy the balance of your day. Looking forward to being back you being back with you uh next week and if all goes well on my end and your end and enjoy the balance of your day and go back and listen to the show again and just encourage yourself. Remember you're free on the inside. Until uh, be strong in the Lord until we meet again. Enjoy the balance of your day and tune in next week for another great episode of Free on the Inside Ministry with Minister Joy Lewis. <laughs>